Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about uh, this amazingly special time we're in right now. It's Sukkot, or it's almost Sukkot. We just finished with Yom Kippur last night, and we go right into Sukkot, which is just this... Ah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. So, so uh, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Sukkot. Maybe we'll touch on some Roshona Yom Kippur ideas, too, just to put them into proper context, because there's, you know, I'll just tell you, just personally, growing up, and one of the great things about being with uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach was that whatever holiday it was, and it doesn't matter whatever holiday it was, I'm talking about even, it could be, you know, let's say it's Lagba Omer, or, or, it's, or Pesach, or Hanukkah, or Rosh Hashanah, or, or Tubishvat. It was the deepest holiday of the entire year. Whatever was the holiday that was happening at that point was absolutely the deepest, deepest, deepest day of the year. But it really was. And somehow that's, this is worthy of further explore, uh, exploration and, and more, more thinking about. But I, I don't know that what he's saying isn't true. I mean, meaning to say is somehow... Because it is true, let me just say that clearly, it's absolutely true, but somehow Hashem jerry-rigged the calendar in such a way that every holiday that's coming is absolutely the deepest of all the holidays. Even if they're quote-unquote minor holidays, somehow everything is culminating to that. And it's phenomenal. And it's, it's, it's true, though. That's, that's, the, that's the amazing thing. You know what I mean? It's not some kind of like, um, some kind of teaching technique that it's sort of like, this will help you to appreciate it if you think of it in this way. That's not it. It is the deepest. So, with that in mind, you, we've got Rosh Hashanah. What could be deeper than the creation of the entire universe? Then you've got Yom Kippur, which is the 10th day afterwards, you're, you know, I saw this thought, I heard it from uh, Ralph Hutner, an amazing thought, I sort of made it the theme of my uh, Yom Kippur speech uh, this year, although, if you were listening to it, it, I don't know that you necessarily would have known that it was the theme of the speech, but anyway, I think that's true for all my talks, but, but nonetheless, the theme, this was the theme, that on Rosh Hashanah, we create the world through our prayers, and on Yom Kippur we create ourselves. And a bit of imagery that sort of came to me regarding that is that, is that come Yom Kippur, the whole world is, is basically finished except for one puzzle piece. So imagine like a completed jigsaw puzzle, and there's just one piece missing, and that's you. And each one of us put in that last puzzle piece. So, Yom Kippur is the, the creation of self. And so, in order to do that, you have to know who you are, you have to know who Hashem is, and then you have to know that Hashem is pure, and on Yom Kippur, you're pure, and you're putting your purity amidst Hashem's purity, and you're also understanding that you don't have any existence that's independent of Hashem. You see, this is, I think, the source of all of errors, all mistakes, is that we get it into our heads that we have an existence that's independent of Hashem. That's fantasy. That's complete fantasy. So, 
So once we understand that, that we're just part of that divine landscape, then we know who we are, and we're able to integrate ourselves properly. Now, along those lines, another bit of imagery that sort of came to me this year is that, just going with that last thought, you know, something very beautiful. If you, if you, if you take a prism, and then the light, just sort of like white light, that's just sunlight, whatever it is, light goes through the prism, and then on the other side of the prism, it comes out just this beautiful rainbow, all the colors. And if you look in the prism, you see it's like a chunk of, I don't know what it's made of, crystal or glass, whatever it is. There's no colors in it. It's just white. And then you shine white light through this white prism, and out comes all the colors. And there's like just beauty that's created. And I thought that's really what's going on in terms of Yom Kippur, is that we're pure inside after Yom Kippur, right? We're all cleaned out. So we're like white and pure inside. So God shines His white light through our souls and out comes like this spectrum of beauty, like rainbows, whatever it is. So, so how do you do that? And part of the sort of like purification process, while Hashem is cleaning us out, you know, I, I told this story, uh, and it's like one of these things, you know, in, in real life sometimes things happen to you, and you realize, wow, God is just teaching me this, this lesson, like just, just straight out. You know, you don't have to do any thinking, it's just so clear. So anyway, let me just tell you fast. Um, really, all of my life, uh, or at least for a decade, I've had uh, black cars. And then I just bought a, uh, a white car. And so I've had that for a little while now, and and I'm, which is okay, except I'm really not big on car washing. I just never get around to it. And so anyway, so I have this white car, and I just actually washed it, which is like a just like a, a big event for me. You know, it doesn't happen that often, and I was so happy because it had gotten really, it had gotten painful to look at. Let's just put it that way. And you know, when it's when 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 there's that level of angst, just like getting into your car, something's wrong. So I figured, okay, I gotta gotta wash my car. So I did, and I was so happy. It was white and it was clean. I was so happy. All right, so I'm sure you're all getting the the Yom Kippur parallels here. But this was about two weeks before Yom Kippur, okay? And uh, anyway, I was meeting someone uh, in the morning, actually the the day before Yom Kippur, and there was. Uh, Cars lined up for a uh, for a traffic light, which wasn't turning green fast enough, and I was late, and I was afraid that I was going to miss the guy, and he was going to leave the coffee shop where I was supposed to meet him, and I was all kind of tense and everything like that. And the line of cars waiting for the stoplight, sort of like where 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 my car was in that line, was just like off of an alley. And I thought, oh, I'll just take this alley, then whip around back on the boulevard. And I'll avoid this, you know, I'll save, what? I'll save 10 seconds, whatever. But at, at that time, it was meaningful to me emotionally. So, so I thought, okay, great. So, so before I just describe to you what this alley was like that I went down, let me just preface it by saying I've never actually driven in Kabul, Afghanistan before, you know? So I don't know what that is like, but I can't imagine it's much worse than what this alley was because 
This alley was one, it was like the craters of the moon. It was one, it was one pothole, deep pothole after another. And, and for some reason, because I was determined to turn this into a shortcut, instead of sort of like gingerly going through it, I thought, well, the whole point is that I'm going to zip through this alley. I floored the car. And it, I really, honestly, I'm amazed that I didn't, like, break the axles on, on my car because it just, it was murder on the car. But not only that, here's the real point of the whole story, is that all of those potholes were filled with muddy water. <laughs> and they all splashed against my white car. And when I got out, I mean, it was... It was, I knew it was going to be bad, or I feared it was going to be bad. It was much worse than what I had feared. And, I mean, ten times worse than what it was when I was getting anxiety attacks looking at my car a few weeks before, right? So, anyway, the point is, is that I knew that I had to do something immediately. I mean, I couldn't even park my car in a parking lot like this because it was that bad. And... I couldn't go to a car wash. I didn't want to. It was going to take too long. And also, it's, they're semi-prohibitive just in terms of the expense of those things. So I just thought, okay, I just got into my head. I'll just go to my house. Wait, I have a hose in my house. I'll just hose it off. And, and I hosed it down, and, and all of the stuff just washed right off, like immediately. Now, that's not exactly true, what I just told you. Because it's actually a little deeper than that. And I didn't include this when I mentioned it the other day, but this is actually even more instructive. It basically washed off. Okay? But here's the... And then it became white again, and that's, that's, and that's Yom Kippur. Just to finish the point before I make a, a second, maybe deeper point. It just washed off, and, and just because the car is white, and that's really the symbol of Yom Kippur, people wear white, and everything like that. It was just, it was, and really to make the point, all of the rabbis say, and you can look at it in, in all the, it's in all the Kabbalah, Sfarim, and, 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 and everything like that. They all say that basically, this level of mistake, or in English we say sin, sin is not a Jewish word, uh, that's another subject, but just to use some shorthand right now, um, all of this is not intrinsic to the soul itself. It's all on a superficial level. So it all just washes off. That's what Hashem does on, on Yom Kippur. He just washes it off. And to see this like muddy wreck of a car just before your eyes turn shiny and white was just, that, that's, that's what Yom Kippur is. Okay, but now let me make the deeper point. Had I washed it off right away, it really would have been just like the story that I told you. It really would have gotten right off like that. But the thing was, I drove with it for a while. Not that long, but for a while, because I had to get to my house, which was on the other side of town. And you know what happened? This stuff dried on my car. The mud actually dried on my car. And so it didn't exactly wash right off. I took some paper towels, and then when I took the paper towels with the hose, then it came right off. 
But some of the things actually got more dried than other things, and they took a little bit of scrubbing. Not a lot, but a little bit of scrubbing. And that, I actually think, is, is the better mushal, the better parable, than just, hey, and then we wash it off and everything is great and hallelujah, brother. Right? Because the thing is, is that if we allow time to pass on things that we need to fix, they get drier and they get harder and then they require more elbow grease in order to get off. And that's kind of, I think, the more potent metaphor here, which is actually what happened. So, so anyway, you know, I put it this way one time, imagine if you had like a Michelangelo sculpture in your home, like, you know, these are worth, these are, they're, well, you can't even put a price on them, they're literally priceless, because there's so few of them. You know, and they're all in the, they're the showpieces of the greatest museums in the world, Right? So imagine you have one, for whatever reason, and it's in your living room, and some of the kids are playing, and they knock the head off the sculpture. (laughs) That's a Michelangelo sculpture. That's worth tens of millions of dollars, easily. And you knock the head off the sculpture, right? Would you say, well, let's see, right now it's May. Yom Kippur's coming up in September. I'll wait till September to fix my Michelangelo sculpture. Right? You wouldn't dream of it. You couldn't run to a, uh, you know, an art restorer fast enough in order to get it, you know, repaired. So what about our souls? Our souls are infinitely more precious than a sculpture, for goodness sakes. Right? So we can't, we can't afford to wait. And that should be our consciousness. Whatever it is. Especially now that it's sort of like, you know... I'll tell you something. I, I mean, it's kind of an embarrassing story, but just to make the point. I, I was once in Jerusalem, and um, I knew someone who was a, a sofer. He's a scribe. And he was writing a... I don't know. I think he was... I'm pretty sure he was writing a Torah. It may have been a Megillah, but I'm pretty sure it was a Torah. And he was a young guy, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the first Torah he's ever written. And he had a beautiful beautiful uh, handwriting. So it was really very special, super clear, really nice. And he, he was showing it to me. He had a whole parchment and the parchment was white, white, white. You know, we say the, the Torah is black fire on white fire. So this is, you, know, you could really see the white fire and the, the black was super jet black and it was so nice. And he showed it to me very proudly. It was on his uh, table and I was like, oh, it's so beautiful, you know? And I bent over and I kissed the page and I had some dirt on the tip of my nose. <laughs> and there was a big nose print on the white fire, right? From my nose, like... And he looked at me like, what are you doing to me, man? You know, I'm like trying to write a Torah here and you're putting your nose print on my... Torah, like, what are you doing? And, you know, I felt like an idiot. And I, I'm sure he was able to get it. I hope he was able to get it off somehow. I'm sure, I, I hope that he was. But, you know, the thing is, is that right now our, our souls are white, 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 white. You know what I mean? And it's like, 
I'm sure he couldn't wait. As soon as I stepped out of that door, I'm sure he ran to get my nose print off his Torah scroll, you know? And it's sort of like we have to treat our own white fire, if you will, the same way, you know? We don't wait around. So, anyway. But getting back to this prism idea, and then I want to talk about Sukkot, is that, so we're white, white. God is shining His white light through us, and then beautiful things come out. Now, how do we do that? So, by making Hashem's will our will. So, by, like, what we were talking about before, Yom Kippur is like the creation of, of self. Yom Rosh Hashanah, we're creating the world through our prayers. Yom Kippur, we're creating ourselves. The whole jigsaw puzzle is done except for that one piece. We're putting in that last piece, and that's us. So, so, so you might say, and this is what a lot of people are afraid of, if I make Hashem's will my will, then I disappear. It's like there's this existential death that happens. I cease to exist. Or I become a robot. And a lot of people are afraid of this. And what's, what is, what is the, the real answer to that? What's the reality of it, rather? Is that you couldn't become like another person if you tried. You know, I'll tell you something. Again, this is sort of an embarrassing story. When I first... So, so just to complete the point, before I re-embarrass myself... Um, every single person is unique. So when God shines His light through you, that rainbow, that, that beautiful thing that comes out, is going to be different from everyone else's. And God constructed us completely differently. Every one of us is completely unique. There's no one like you in the whole world. So what shines out of you, what comes out of you, is going to be completely different than everyone else. That's an incredible thing. Now, I, when I first started writing, I had a writing partner, and he was a great typer. You know, some people just have that gift. He could just, just write quickly. And I'm, I've gotten better over the years, but I wasn't a great typer. And also, he just kind of took on the responsibility for, for typing up our pieces in the, in the beginning of our partnership and didn't seem to mind it, so that's kind of what it was. But then at a certain point, it was sort of like, well, maybe I should do some typing. And I started doing some typing. And I remember thinking, if I type too well, I'm going to start doing the typing. So maybe I shouldn't type that well or that quickly. And that way he'll go, eh, let me do it because I'm a good typer. So I started typing kind of like, not great. And then I said to myself, what are you doing? This is completely unprofessional. You have a certain level of responsibility. Type your best. So I said, you know, this whole conversation was in my own head. I said, okay, great. I, you're right. I'm going to type my best. So I started really typing my best, and I wasn't that great a typer. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like the same result, but it came out in a real honest way as opposed to this fraudulent way. So really it was the best business decision for him to do most of the typing, but that was now based on truth as opposed to my own laziness or running away from responsibility. So what I'm trying to say is, is that all of us are completely different. All of us are completely unique. And 
we don't have to be afraid of becoming like everyone else, because it's never going to happen. And the best, best, best example of this is the sukkah. So, the sukkah, if you look, Gomorrah's sukkah is a thick volume of the Talmud, and the laws are, there's zillions of laws about how to properly construct a sukkah, right? And they talk about all sorts of weird, unusual cases. You know, um, I was learning a little bit of the Mishnah last night, uh, uh, and I just sort of happened upon this one. It's the first Mishnah of the second section. And it talks about whether or not you're able to sleep under a bed in a sukkah. Because I guess the idea is if you're sleeping under a bed, maybe the, the top of the bed is your roof. Right? And then they say, but wait a second, you can sleep under a bed because there was a certain slave of this great Talmudic master, and he slept under the bed of the sukkah. And he knew this slave, because he lived in this household, knew tons of Torah. So we can actually learn Torah from this non-Jewish slave. And if he slept under the sukkah, then therefore you can sleep under a bed in a sukkah. And then they said, no, you don't understand. He is not obligated to sleep in a sukkah to begin with. That's why he was actually sleeping under the bed, because it doesn't, because it doesn't, you can't sleep under a bed, but that, that stricture doesn't apply to him. That's why he, he slept under the bed. So, just say, there are all sorts of weird, like, things about sukkah. Like, can you have a sukkah on a camel? You know, because people would, like, take these, like, these, like, these long journeys and go through a, a desert. So, you'd be on your camel in a long time. Can you construct a sukkah around you on a camel? Can you have a sukkah in a tree, on a branch in a tree? Can you have a double-decker sukkah, a two-story sukkah? All right, can you have a round sukkah? All right, these are all, how small is a sukkah that you can, you know, you can make a sukkah out of your car, by the way. Yeah, you, you, what you do is, you have a sunroof, and you put some schach, some palm fronds, on top of the sunroof, and I think you have to open up the doors. I'm not sure, check, check on that. For some reason, I think you have to open up some of the doors. I don't know why that would be, but... Um, Anyway, but you can, you can do that. Some people I know have tried to make um, sukkahs out of uh, refrigerator boxes. You know, because those are big, tall boxes. And then, I mean, people, they're, anyway, there are tons, there are tons and tons of, 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 of crazy sukkah laws, basically. And in fact, one of the, I, I don't have it in my sukkah, and I'd, I'd really like to get it. There's a wonderful chart, most of the Jewish uh, uh, gift shops sell them. And it's all of the, it's pictures of all of the crazy sukkahs from the Gomorrah. And whether or not they're kosher or not. So you can actually see a picture of a guy with a sukkah riding a camel. So you've got all of these examples. And it's like a very fun thing to get because it's a very quick way of learning the laws. And then also it's, they're, they're far out basically. Okay, so, so, so what's the point? The point is, is that here you have all these elaborate laws. So if I were to tell you, there's so many, and this is just, a, a, I'm just giving this over to you as a metaphor. 
for people observing Torah in general and afraid of becoming like everyone else. It's going to wipe out their identity or their uniqueness. So here you have a concrete example. A sukkah has so many laws connected to it, and yet no two people's sukkahs are exactly the same. If you go to people's sukkahs, you'll see there. It's like it's like going on a tour of the world. It's like going around the world. This one looks like an an Arabian sheik's tent, you know. This one, I know people who have actually put a sink with faucets and running water. And there, other people have a television set in their sukkah. Other people have like partition curtains. They've got like a, oh, well, this is the dining room. That's the, that's the bedroom. Because ideally you can sleep in your sukkah. You should sleep in your sukkah if you can. Right? So you've got, you know, I've got two sukkahs. I've got my, the, the dining sukkah. And then upstairs, I've got my sleeping sukkah. Right? And I never would have thought to do that in my life, except when I moved into this house, we had a couple of rabbis come in and just to help us um, with where the mezuzah should go. Because anytime you have a house, there's always question marks like, is this a doorway? Is this not a doorway? Should you put a mezuzah here or not? There's, every house has questions like this. So we had a couple of rabbis come and they were walking through it. And when they got to the balcony outside our bedroom, they both independently said the same thing. This is a great place for a sukkah. And when two separate people said it, we went, all right, let's build a sukkah over here, you know? So anyway, it's tiny. <laughs> it's exactly the width of a bed. I mean, there's no, it's just, it's like literally, just you have room to roll in a cot, and that's how wide it is, you know? And I'll tell you something. A couple of years ago, maybe it's getting, maybe three years ago at this point, you don't have to be in a sukkah if it rains. In fact, or if it gets too hot. And the Kutzker Rebbe actually has an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, word on this. It, because it says in the halacha, if you say, I have a headache, or I am too hot, or I am too cold, right? the operative word there is I. If you say any of these things, you are putter, you are excused from leaving the sukkah. In other words, you can leave the sukkah. Okay? So, all good? So, the Katskarebi, I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, yeah, this is just for the dwelling part. You know, for, because ideally you're supposed to dwell in the sukkah. You're supposed to turn the sukkah into your home. So, if you... Want to read the newspaper? You want to go on the internet? Do it in the sukkah. Like, whatever it is. You want to talk on the phone? Do it in the sukkah. You just move your life into the sukkah. So, but if you feel as though I'm too hot, I'm too cold, I have a headache, whatever it is, then you can leave the sukkah. So, but the key word is if you say I, right? So, so the Katska Rebbe in his inimitable, very, you know, laser, laser way, says... You know why you can get out of the sukkah? Because there's too much I in the sukkah. There's no room for you in the sukkah because all that is in the sukkah is your own ego. <laughs> Very strong. Very strong, you know. It's, you know, so... Anyway, that doesn't mean if you have a headache, therefore you should stay in the sukkah necessarily. But it's just... Anyway, it's like everything the Rebbe say. It's just, it just deserves further, further thought. So... But 
But I just want to tell you when it rained, I, it wasn't raining when I went to bed and I had this heavy, heavy plastic tarp. You know, one of those things that's like, it's actually heavy to lift because it's so heavy. You know, that type of plastic. And so I had it on the foot of my bed just in case it started raining. And everyone knew it was going to pour that night. But I thought, you know what, it's not raining night now, and who knows, and this is already way more organized than I usually am. I'll have the tarp at the foot of my bed, you know, just in case. And all right, we'll see what happens. All right, it started raining. And, and then it didn't just rain, it poured. It poured in a way that's very unusual for Los Angeles. And I thought to myself, because it was the middle of the night, I thought, oh, you know, I'm all groggy. I thought, oh, well, I'll just, okay, I've got the tarp. I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll just kind of pull it over me. So it wasn't over the top of the sukkah. It was, it was over like a blanket. And so I pulled it over me. And I'm telling you, the, it was raining so hard. It was like, the rain was like someone was like, stabbing me with a fork. <laughs> that's, that's how hard the rain was. And this tarp was so heavy that when it was over my head, I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, it's like one of those rainfalls, like people in Los Angeles don't know this feeling, but if you grew up in New York or in other places where it actually rains, you know this thing where there's certain rainfalls where just as soon as you walk out of the house, you're drenched. Like, all of your clothes are drenched. You walk half a block or a block, and you're gone. Like, none of these, like, kitty rainfalls. You know what I mean? Where it's sort of like misting, right? You know? It's like, this is a real rain. Real rain. You know? And, and, you know, you can become a connoisseur of raindrops, you know? Because, again, if you live in New York, you've got those, there's certain raindrops that are big raindrops. They're like, there's like, each raindrop has like a lot of water in it. You know what I'm talking about? The big raindrops. Like, I don't know what the physics of that is, but it's sort of like, anyway, all raindrops are not created equal. So, so anyway, and I just remember like thinking, I can't, I can't go on like this. You know, I'm like trapped under this heavy tarp. It's the rain is actually hurting me. I can't breathe. And then I thought, but what's the alternative? The alternative is to like, like get completely drenched, completely drenched in the middle of the night. And I don't even know what I was wearing. And it's like, that seemed worse to me. <laughs> so I sort of like lifted up the little tarp. So like, I, I made sort of like an air hole. And I just kind of waited it out, you know. But um, I don't know. There, I don't think. I wish I could say. Therefore, there's a lesson to learn from that. But I don't think there is a lesson to learn from that story. That's just kind of, kind of Tony Asuka story there. So anyway, um, <laughs> so um, you know the Rebbe's when it. You know, in certain climates, sukkahs are interesting because because in some places, like probably like the the countries in the Middle East and everything like that, Sukkot is, I guess it's kind of rainy in those places, but at the same time, it's warm. But there's a whole sub-genre of literature dealing with people's Sukkot in Russia. 
because that's heavy winter snowfall time. And there's a lot of stories about people sleeping in sukkahs and being sukkahs piled in snow. And uh, there's one story. There's one story. And I, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I wasn't planning on saying it and I don't, I don't have the whole story, but I just remember the, the end of the story. And it, and it deals with Reb Zusha, you know, one of the great Hasidic masters. And Reb Zusha was, was in the sukkah with someone who wasn't a Hasid. And basically, basically, it was snowing on the guy who wasn't a Hasid, and on Reb Zusha wasn't snowing so much. Because Reb Zusha was diving to Hashem basically to keep him warm. Okay? And the end of the story, the way Reb Shlomo says it was, Reb Zusha, you could have warmed up the entire world. Why did you stop? Why did you stop praying? Your prayers at that moment could have warmed up the entire world. Why did you stop? You know, it reminds me of a story. I haven't told this in I don't know how many years. It's one of the first stories that I ever remember hearing from Reb Shlomo. And it goes like this. Someone, you know, holidays, for better or for worse, are expensive. Because there's a lot of yantif meals and, you know, you want to serve your best and everything like that. And that requires shopping and cooking and preparing. And also, you know, ideally, if you're really doing it right, you, you, you buy your wife uh, a present before yantif. And uh, also you want to wear your best clothes, which means... At the very least, usually going to the dry cleaner, which costs money, or buying something new, or whatever it is. So, yentives aren't cheap. Um, which is why it's always good to give tzedakah, uh, to have poor people in mind before yentif. Especially Pesach. That's known as the most expensive holiday. So, um, so anyway. Uh, and, you know, with sukkahs, you've got the, the arba minim and, and the sukkah itself, so that's an extra expense. You know, the lulav and estrog and all the rest. Anyway. Uh, so there was a there was a chassid and um, he was broke and the Rebbe gave him a penny and to buy all of his yantif needs with and you know the chassid took the penny I don't remember any of the names, I'm sorry. But the chassid took the penny and he, he went into the, the clothing store. He thinks, what do, what do my kids need? My kids need shoes. Let's start with shoes. Goes into the shoe shop and selects some shoes. And then when it comes time to pay, he gives the, the, uh, the penny to the, to the storekeeper. And the storekeeper takes the penny and says, just gives him the shoes and hands him the penny back. And the chassid can't believe it. And then he goes, he says, you know, my wife needs clothes. And he goes and he buys his wife clothes. And he hands the penny to the shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper gives him the clothes and hands him the penny back. And then he goes to buy food. And he buys so much food, what he needs. And he gives the storekeeper the penny. And the storekeeper gives him all the food. And then he hands him the penny back. Now listen to this. This is the end of the story. The chassid obviously is absolutely overjoyed. He can't believe what's just happened. He goes to the Rebbe 
And he gives the Rebbe the penny back. And the Rebbe starts crying. And he says to him, why did you give the penny back? So, there are openings after Yom Kippur. You know, that's, so to speak, kind of like the penny. We've been given, like, this key right now. You see, I just want to say something just deep, but simple at the same time. Sukkot has a special name. The different holidays have names. The name of Sukkot is Man Simchasenu. That means the time of our joy. Why? Because on Yom Kippur, we've done all this work on ourselves. We're Shani Yom Kippur. We've reached a level of clarity which is unprecedented in the year right now. And from that clarity, we can see that this is a time of joy. That the world is a place of joy if we turn it into that. To the extent that it isn't, it's because of all of our brokenness. But right now, we, so to speak, have this clarity. We, so to speak, have this penny. And we can't give the penny back. We can't. We can't afford to. We can't afford to. Right now, there's like this, like, it's like, you know, I don't know how many of you have been to a chiropractor before. But chiropractic is like really kind of weird because it works, but like moments later you can throw yourself out of adjustment. You know what I mean? It's like super temporary. But it works, actually. But then you start walking weird again and standing weird again or whatever it is, and then you kind of throw yourself back out. Right now we've got like this alignment, which is like we got to figure out like what is it? Like what's right right now? Like I know, like I know, I, I woke up this morning, and this doesn't happen to me every year. I woke up this morning, I felt a hundred percent clean. Like I, it, it's like I feel, I feel there's a clarity right now. I just, I feel it so strongly right now, and I got to figure out in my own head what's, why do I feel this way? Because I've got to hold on to this. I must hold on to this. And what's so great? is that we're going right into Sukkot. It's like, and, and what's so great is that it's a three-day holiday. You know what I mean? I know that some people, like the three-day holidays, they're like, you know, when you've got the first two days of Sukkot that goes right into Shabbos, some people dread those. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, what, what I go through after a three-day holiday, I can't imagine a vacation in Hawaii is more restful and more uplifting than a three-day holiday. Because, you know, let's say you go to Hawaii. Let's say you stay at one of these really super fancy places in Hawaii, right? You've got to pack. You've got to book your flight. You've got to pay for your flight. You've got to get to the airport. You've got to get to the hotel. You've got to unpack. Then maybe, you know, knowing Hawaii, I've never been to Hawaii, but I hear it rains a lot in Hawaii. Maybe you'll hit a patch where it's raining. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll find some good food. Maybe you won't. I don't know. Then you've got to pack up again. Then you've got to make your flight. Then you've got to get home. Then you've got to unpack. There's a lot of work that goes into a vacation. You know, more than once I've heard people say, I need a vacation for my vacation. Have you ever heard anyone say that? You know? But these three-day yuntifs, it's like, you know, you're walking in and it's like, oh my, oh. 
you know, oh yeah, oh yeah, you wake up again, no work, again, awesome, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then, and then, the three-day yantif goes into something America calls Sunday, oh my goodness, you know, it's like, wow, you know, can't beat that, so, so let me just, uh, Say over something else. We touched on it a little bit on Yom Kippur, but I want to go more into depth in it. All right, so everybody knows that there's an arrangement of the Yudke Vavke of Hashem's holiest name for each of the months. And the arrangement for um, Tishrei is Vav and He and Yud and He. And actually, it's very unusual because unlike almost all the other permutations, this actually spells out a word, which is Vahaya, which in Torah Hebrew means, Haya means was, the Vav is a reversing Vav, so it changes from past tense to future tense, so Vahaya means it will be. So, again, it's, a, it's so um, emblematic of, of, of Judaism, that as we start the new year, we're thinking about the future, we're not dwelling in the past. It's just all the opportunities ahead. Right? That's, that's healthy. That's good. That's beautiful. Now, Vahaya correlates with a... All the, all the permutations of Hashem's name correlate with a four-word passage from, from Torah. Okay? So, let me just uh, find it here. Okay, here it is. So, what does Vahaya correlate with? The passage, Vayiruata Sare Para. And if you take the last four letters of those words, sometimes it's the first four letters, we have something called um, Roshe Tevos and Sofe Tevos. Okay? So that's either you take the first letters of a passage or you take the last letters of a passage. So in this instance, it's the last four letters of each of those, or the last letter of those four words. And, it, and the last four letters are Vav and He and Yud and He. Vahaya. Okay? So what does this passage mean? Because it's kind of weird. Okay, you ready? It's, it, it means, and the officers of Paro saw Sarah, and what's the rest of that? So that they could kidnap her and bring her to the Egyptian king. So this is mysterious. Why? You know, and this was put together by our, our greatest sages, like our highest Kabbalists, made these correlations. So, Tishrei, a time of tshuva, a time of rebirth, a time of looking forward. We're correlating those four letters, and, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I strongly sense that there must be either four other words that begin with the letters that we have here, or end with the letters that we have here, so I think that, again, I, I, I haven't done a, a search on this, so, but my instinct is that they deliberately picked this passage. Okay? It's just not that it was the only one. Because it's not such an uncommon sequence of letters, is what I'm trying to tell you. So what is this weird connection between looking forward and, and also, very important piece to this puzzle, is that the Gomorrah says that when you have the word Vahaya at the beginning of a verse, at the beginning of a Pasuk, that it means 
it's going to be good. So it's a very positive sign. And yet we're correlating it with Abraham's Avera. Right, so we have to figure out what do we mean, Abraham's Avera. So there's a whole discussion, and if you want to see this, I'm drawing from Rabbi Reisman's book on the Hebrew months by Art Scroll. He has a whole chapter on it. So what he says is the following. You see, there's a very controversial Ramban. The Ramban says that Abraham Avinu sinned when he went down into Egypt when there was a famine in Israel. So, let's just make sure that we're all following, that we all know the, the sequence of events. Hashem says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, go to Israel. Abraham brings his whole camp, right? A big, kind of gets up, goes to a place that he, you know, is a stranger in, a stranger in a strange land, right? Goes to this place. And you think, he's uh, 75 years old at this point, Abraham. You think that Hashem says, okay, you passed the test, you uprooted yourself, you took your whole family to this land that I'm promising you, you think that's the end of the story. That should be the end of the story, right? Everything's good right now. And so, what happens? Abraham is greeted with, oh, Abraham, I got a few things for you. Um, first off, a famine. How's that? <laughs> Welcome to the famine. It's like, what? You know, and... and I tell you something, that teaching, by the way, changed my life. It changed my life. Because it told me, Abraham, who is blameless, Abraham, who is, you know, I know that Moshe was the greatest ever. I, I understand that. But I keep on thinking, after I say that, a voice in my head says, or was it Abraham? <laughs> Maybe it was Abraham. Because it's really, if you study the life of Abraham, it's really hard to beat Abraham. He's, he's beyond awesome. He's beyond awesome. And so Abraham gets to Canaan, and, and what I'm trying to say is that Abraham didn't, didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with Abraham. And in our own lives, we keep on thinking, well, I did this, this, this crummy thing is happening to me because I did this. And on some level, there's truth to that. And we have to ask ourselves that question. In fact, the Rambam says that it's axarius, it's cruelty, if we don't ask ourselves the question, what did I do that this is happening to me? So, there is, that is part of our homework. Nonetheless, nonetheless, from Abraham, we see that this world is a world of work. And that we get tests and we get obstacles and we get challenges no matter what. Even if we're blameless, no matter what, tests and obstacles come our way. And there's no better example of that than the fact that Abraham listens to God, has done a lifetime, ten lifetimes of enormous work, by the way, leading up to this moment of, Lech, of Lech Lecha, gets Lech Lecha, goes into Canaan, the land of Israel, and gets greeted with a famine. It wasn't any punishment. It simply was not a punishment. It was another challenge. That's, that's all it is. And so, when you 
When you look into your own life, if you say to yourself, well, wait a second, you know something, I don't know why this is happening, that's okay. There's no contradiction. This is a world of work. That's all. It's a challenge. It's okay. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. Overcoming challenges. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. Okay. So now, here's where the Ramban says something controversial. The Ramban says Avraham should have stayed in Israel. He should have had faith that God was going to feed him and he shouldn't have left Israel. Now, and by going down into Egypt, he actually did something wrong. Alright, now, the reason why that's even more amazing is that the Mishnah says that Abraham passed the test. So the Mishnah, which is coming maybe a thousand years beforehand, has no problem with Abraham's actions. And here you have Nachmanides, you know, more than a thousand years later, saying, look, and I'll tell you something, there's a whole field of rabbinic literature just based on this Ramban, you should know. Including the idea that that it was revealed to the Ramban something that wasn't even revealed to earlier generations. So even that's like a far out thought, but there's something to it, you know, but you have to deal with super kosher sources at that point. You know what I mean? You can't just say, well, I'm like the Ramban. I'm going to come up with something completely antithetical to all of our traditions. And it was revealed to me that Judaism is very strongly against that. But when we're talking about someone singular like the Ramban, it's something else. And also when that opinion isn't uprooting any Jewish law. It's not uprooting anything. That's another very important reason why we take him seriously. Anyway, let me just cut to the chase. I'll just give you the end of this fast. It's that Abraham made it right. Let's say, let's say he did do something wrong. Let's just... Go with the Ramban on this. When he went down into Egypt, he did tshuva. And he turned what was initially perhaps a negative thing, maybe not having sufficient faith that God was going to feed him during the famine. But when he went down into Egypt, tremendous spiritual gates opened for the Jewish people. Now we have a I'll give you a few examples, just so you understand. I'm talking on a super concrete level right now. We have a very important foundation in Jewish thought, which is that what happened to our forefathers is a sign for their children, or put in a fancier way, the life of our forefathers is actually a microcosm for, Jewish, for future Jewish history. And if you look at the story of Abraham in Egypt, you'll see that it exactly parallels the story of the Jewish people in Egypt several hundred years later. And that all of what the Jews were able to accomplish during their servitude, during our slavery in Egypt, actually the spiritual groundwork was laid by Abraham during this trip. And one example, a very compelling, amazing example, is that the Jewish women in Egypt did not intermarry. And Sarah, what this passage is referring to right now that the ministers of Paro saw the beauty of Sarah, kidnapped her, right? That was another thank you to Abraham, right? Oh, the famine wasn't enough for you? I've got dessert. Your wife's going to be kidnapped. 
and brought into the harem of Pharaoh. Right? I mean, the, the challenges didn't stop. She gets inside the harem of Pharaoh, and you're thinking, nothing good is going to come from that. Right? I mean, this is bad news. Hashem closed up all of the orifices of, of Paro and of his community there and came to Paro in a dream and said, what are you doing? You've got, you've got the wife of Abraham in your harem? What's going on? And Paro like wakes up and says, hey, get her out of here. And you know what? Just so we're on good terms... Here's like lots of gold and lots of silver and lots of cattle and unbelievable riches. And that's, that's the story in Egypt as well. It says that all of the women in Egypt during those hundreds of years of slavery completely stayed like pure and weren't violated at all by the Egyptians. Which is... Amazing, actually. Over that long a period of time, that's amazing. And that was all because of Sarah. And when we left, we left with all of the riches of Egypt. And that was because of Abraham. So, in other words, here's the point. The point is, is that if Abraham did do something wrong going down, all of it got turned around to something good. So, here you see, that's the essence of what tshuva is. You start one way, and then you turn it into something good. And that's what the essence of Tishrei is. And that's why the Yudke Vavke, Hashem's name for Tishrei, is correlating with this chapter of history. Because it starts off bad, and it turns off into something enormously good. That's what we're doing in Tishrei. That's the energy of Tishrei. Transformation. And it's all expressed in these sort of encoded ways. Not only that, and we'll end with this, you see this with the construction of the sukkah itself. In order for a sukkah, what is the on switch? Like, we know that Hashem's presence dwells in a sukkah. It's like this amazing chamber. It's like this spiritual chamber. You know, it's like, great. It's just like, the light comes down. How does it work? What's the on switch? What, what, what activates the sukkah? The answer is the schach, the stuff that we put on top. Can't be metal. No implements of war or permanence. It's got to be organic, right? Big buzzword today, but for real. It's got to be like vegetation. Now, what vegetation do we use? We use what what was classically known as psolis. Psolis means the stuff that the, the farmers weren't using. If you want to be more colorful about it, you can call it garbage. They would take these leaves and stuff like that, which had no use for them anymore, right? In fact, it's garbage. They want to throw it out, and they take it, and they put it on top of the sukkah, and that's what activates the sukkah. And then Hashem's light comes down. So this is our life. This is, this is Tishrei. We take the garbage from our life, the things that we've done wrong, and we turn it around. 
And now that very thing becomes our glory. That thing sits over our heads and is what brings the light down. It's an incredible thing. An incredible thing. I'll just tell you one last fast teaching and we'll wrap it up. Which is that Reb Shlomo said this and I just, ah, I love it so much. I love it so much. He says, if you want to know how forgiven you were on Yom Kippur, the test is, how much at home do you feel in the sukkah? You know, because the sukkah, and I thought that this was Reb Shlomo, because it sounds like Reb Shlomo, but then someone told me this was the Ari, so this is going back, not, not, not what I just said, what I'm about to say. That, what is the sukkah? It's a hug. God is hugging you. Right? Because you're surrounded. Like, this whole idea is like you're being hugged. Right? So everybody knows, everyone's been hugged by someone who they're not crazy about. <laughs> it's sort of like, I don't feel good with you hugging me right now. You know, this, I'm waiting for this to stop. You know, and then everyone's been hugged by someone who they want to be hugged by. And then you're like, ah, it feels so good. So, so you, you go in and if you feel good in the hug, then you know, ah. So, anyway... Let's hold on to the joy. And uh, I don't know, something tells me that we got a good year ahead of us. I don't know, somehow I'm feeling it. I'm feeling that things are just kind of flowing. It's just me talking right now. But, you know, Shem should bless us all with just such a good year. And just, you know, make a plan. Just take out a pen. Write down a list of things that you want to do. And then... Break it down into small pieces. Break it down into small pieces. And don't try to do, you know what, I tell you the mistake that I've been making for the last 20 years. I'm trying to get out of this. I got so many ideas and I'm trying to do them all at once. And I'm realizing nothing's getting done. And it's because I'm trying to do 10 things at once. So I'm just going to just try to take one thing and just break it down and then I'll move on to the next thing. Because... You know, as my father once told me, a little of something is worth more than a truckload of nothing. So just figure out one thing you want to do, break it down into small pieces, and then just go ahead and do it. Okay. It should be a great year.